In spring 2007, 30-year-old Rudy Kanaewan stood up from his desk and nervously paced around his house in Arcadia, California. He had just sent yet another email to fellow wine connoisseur Doug Barsley requesting the empty bottles from a tasting Doug had hosted in April. At the event, Rudy had made Doug assure him he'd send all empties along, but they'd been drinking that night. Rudy worried Doug had forgotten his promise. Meanwhile, across the country, in his New York City apartment, Doug Barsley read Rudy's message with slight annoyance. He remembered telling Rudy that he'd deliver on the odd request, but he couldn't understand Rudy's urgency. Some novice tasters occasionally took home a bottle or two after a tasting for sentimental reasons, but experienced wine drinkers like Doug and Rudy rarely felt the need to keep a bottle after they were done with it. They certainly didn't repeatedly demand them. Doug shook off his confusion, deeming Rudy the eccentric type, and shortly thereafter, he sent the bottles as promised. When Rudy received the shipment, he nearly wept with relief. He'd likely heard the rumors swirling around that he was a fraud. These bottles would provide him an opportunity to reinstate his legitimacy in the elite industry of lavish booze. So Rudy got down to business, using counterfeit wine to fill the bottles. But while Rudy pushed new corks into decades-old vessels, collectors across the country opened the fake artisanal wines they'd purchased from him. It would only be a few months before Rudy's bubble of glory popped. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Last week, we explored Rudy Kanaewan's rise to glory in the wine community as he sold counterfeit wines from his extravagant collection. This week, we'll examine the downfall of Rudy's reputation, detailing how the suspicions of collectors spread to winemakers and eventually sparked a federal investigation into Rudy's operation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. 
but that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Rudy Kanewan was born in 1976 to Chinese parents in Jakarta, Indonesia. His wealthy family fled to the U.S. in the 1990s, around the same time that two of his uncles were convicted of massive financial fraud. Rudy obtained a student visa to study accounting at California State University and had his first fine wine several years after. As he later recalled, it was a 1996 Opus One Cabernet, and the experience was life-changing. Realizing the great potential of his sensitive palate, Rudy felt compelled to learn more about wine. He wasted no time. Attending wine tastings in Los Angeles and soon traveling around the country to bid at exclusive auctions. Of course, it was all too easy for Rudy to hack his way in with his family's supposed wealth burning a hole in his pocket. By 2006, 29-year-old Rudy had been accepted into the wine elite after selling $35 million worth of bottles from his personal collection. If he hadn't solidified his reputation before, this accolade dispelled any public doubt that Rudy belonged in the world of wine. But eventually, in 2007, seasoned buyers began tasting the wines they'd purchased from Rudy and grew skeptical about its authenticity. Some even hired specialists who only confirmed their fears. Rudy's bottles were often counterfeits. When buyers returned their fraudulent wines to their respective auction houses demanding refunds, Rudy scrambled to make more cash. But in doing so, he got messier with his operation. A mistake that would cost him. At the time, the wine community wondered if Rudy was hawking fakes, but they had no clue he was also making them. That all changed once Rudy's mail shipments were tracked by one imposing organization, the FBI. In late 2006, 30-year-old Rudy Kanawan hosted a dinner for some of his closest friends at Crew Restaurant in Manhattan, New York. Crew was a wine lover's paradise, as it offered a collection of over 150,000 bottles and a modern, comfortable atmosphere to enjoy them. Having held his first auction at Crew 11 months earlier, Rudy felt it was the perfect place to celebrate his extraordinarily successful year. The group of wealthy enophiles opened bottle after bottle of rare vintage wine from Rudy's personal collection, toasting the man of the hour. But when Rudy returned home to California a few days later, his mood quickly soured. Rudy had asked the restaurant to ship all of the empty bottles back to his place in Arcadia. He claimed that he planned to use them for a bottle museum he was building in his garage. Meanwhile, his friends were led to believe that Rudy was just a sentimental guy who wanted to preserve good memories. In reality, Rudy kept the bottles in order to refill and resell them. It was the key trick in his counterfeiting process. So when all but two of his bottles from the crew dinner arrived broken, he was irate. Rudy sent an email to Robert Bohr, the wine director at Crew, chastising the restaurant for its careless handling of his precious cargo. He was particularly upset about the damaged bottle of 1923 Bonmar Burgundy from Domaine Georges Rumier. 
Robert immediately apologized to Rudy, fearful of losing an important client to such a silly mistake. But shortly thereafter, Robert decided that sending empty bottles home with customers might not be worth the hassle anymore. Crew Restaurant quietly instituted a policy of destroying all empty wine bottles after they were finished to avoid future liability. Rudy's impulsive response ultimately put him at a disadvantage moving forward. Unwilling to send along the empties, Crew Restaurant could no longer be one of Rudy's prime haunts. Had Rudy considered the potential outcome of his angry email, he may have opted to react more peaceably. Instead, Rudy indulged his reactive feelings, finding himself with a bigger problem than the one he had in the first place. The relationship between emotional distress and self-destructive behavior is strong. In the 1996 study, Why Do Bad Moods Increase Self-Defeating Behavior?, psychologists Karen Petzer-Leith and Roy Baumeister explored this link. They discovered that emotionally distraught people do indeed bring misfortune upon themselves because they are more likely to make poor decisions and take unwise risks. High arousal emotions, such as embarrassment or anger, cause participants to make even riskier choices than those experiencing a lower arousal bad mood, such as sadness. Rudy's rage at losing out on a few bottles caused him to risk his relationship with an important restaurant's wine director, one that he had previously relied on for his swindle. While it was a poor decision, Rudy's high reactivity may speak to just how emotionally distraught he became over threats to his success. But this setback was only the start of many. In January of 2007, a couple of months after Rudy's dinner at Crew, another group of tasters met up for a party of their own. Don Stott, internationally renowned Burgundy collector, hosted a group at his house in New Jersey to try some of the wines he'd purchased at Rudy's auction. Don invited his usual group of friends, including noted collectors Alan Meadows and Doug Barsley. But he had also invited a guest of honor, Christophe Rumier, grandson of the famed winemaker Georges Rumier. Christophe had taken over his family's winery in 1992 and was excited to taste vintages that had purportedly been bottled by both his father and grandpa. But when Christophe was presented with the bottle of 1923 Bonmar, he was confused. His grandfather hadn't founded Domaine Georges Rumier until 1924. The men shrugged. Perhaps Rudy had come across an extremely rare vintage, one that had been bottled just before the winery had been made official. A find like that would be unusual, but not unheard of. When Christophe tasted it, he pursed his lips and shook his head. With a grimace on his face, he told the table that there was no way his family had bottled the wine he'd just sipped. Don was alarmed. Rather than stew in the humiliation of presenting Christophe a counterfeit bottle of his own wine, he decided to take charge of the situation. Don encouraged the men to think critically about the rest of the wine as they tasted it, to hunt for anything that seemed inauthentic. After a thorough examination of the 11 bottles Don had bought from Rudy, six were determined to be fakes. And it wasn't just the taste that convinced the group they were in the presence of counterfeit bottles. One of Don's guests always carried a small magnifying glass in his pocket. That night, he used it to examine the labels on Rudy's wine bottles. 
he observed that while the details of the labels were correct, the information was reversed in its position. The man declared the labels to be high-quality photocopies. Furious, Don returned the fraudulent bottles to Acker Merrill and Condit and demanded a refund of over $500,000. The auction house dutifully obliged him. But the president of the elite auction house, John Cappen, was a close friend of Rudy's. He felt disappointed that so much of the bottles from Rudy's collection had turned out to be fakes. He wasn't willing to suspect his friend would commit fraud, so instead, John assumed Rudy had been duped by counterfeiters, which unfortunately occurred somewhat often in the luxury wine world. And most buyers would have typically agreed with John that Rudy had simply become the victim of a clever wine-selling imposter. After all, Rudy had always seemed to have a vested interest in correcting his mistakes. If a collector ever brought a fake bottle to Rudy's attention, Rudy apologized profusely. He'd demand to know which bottle had been fake so he could make a point not to purchase from that particular auction house again. But the good reputation he'd built with that behavior didn't hold up after Don's wine party gone wrong in early 2007. The six fakes tipped off collectors who began to suspect that Rudy might be deliberately selling counterfeits. And in the spring of 2007, that skepticism only grew when Doug Barsley hosted a tasting. He couldn't shake the sense that Rudy's behavior was less than professional. Rudy urgently insisted that Doug remember to send him the empty bottles after the event. And when Rudy pestered Doug further in the following weeks, Doug's suspicions only rose. Though he sent Rudy the bottles, he wondered what Rudy was really doing with all the bottles he kept from private parties and tastings. He also considered that it might have something to do with the numerous counterfeits that were returned to Acker Merrill and Condit just months after Rudy's second auction. But Doug and his fellow collectors sought answers for their suspicions quietly, waiting for the moment when Rudy would reveal his putrid character on his own. Coming up, Rudy served a daunting dose of reality when one unexpected expert nearly shuts down an auction. Hi listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
In January of 2007, collector Don Stott hosted a dinner party that featured 11 bottles from Rudy's collection, but six of them were determined to be frauds. Naturally, the rumor mill churned, and by mid-2007, collectors all over the United States were suspicious of 30-year-old Rudy Canawan's wine. Bill Koch, a famous collector in Palm Beach, had joined the growing number of enophiles returning Rudy's bottles to Acker, Maryland Condit. This drew attention all over the wine community, as the upper echelons of the wine elite whispered and theorized about what it meant. But John Cappen of Acker, Maryland Condit held steadfast to the belief that Rudy was just a good man who had been tricked. He defended Rudy's collection in an online wine forum, calling Rudy an honorable person, one of the most passionate wine lovers on earth, and one of the people that makes the wine world truly great. John insisted that lemons are always going to pop up in the sale of luxury goods. He urged winos to recognize that Rudy's misfortune shouldn't reflect poorly on him as a collector. But while John still had utmost faith in his friend, the rest of Acker's board had serious doubts about Rudy. The small auction house and wine shop had refunded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Rudy Canaoan bottles every month since early 2007. Publicly, John continued to go to bat for Rudy, but privately, Acker Maryland Condit filed a $1 million lien against him. Rudy made it clear to the company that he understood the position they were in and tried to maintain a good relationship with them despite the situation. But privately, Rudy went into panic mode. He suddenly owed Acker Maryland Condit a lot of money, and they weren't the only outfit waiting on payments from him. For someone who grossed around $30 million the previous year, paying off the auction houses should have been a simple transaction. But in the summer of 2007, Rudy didn't have a penny of what he'd made. For one thing, he'd funneled much of his cash into his Bel Air mansion. Extensive renovations had turned into eight separate lawsuits and counter-lawsuits after construction began. So Rudy was already drowning in legal fees when the auction houses began demanding refunds. To remedy the situation, Rudy emailed his wealthy friends pleading for loans of $850,000 here or $1 million there. He promised to pay them back as soon as he could. Luckily for Rudy, suspicions about his sketchy business practices hadn't reached every mind in his circle. His close friends sent him checks, wholeheartedly believing that Rudy would pay them back. But when he got their loans, he didn't pay off his debts. He worked on securing his next batch of fake wines. Because even though Rudy hadn't paid off the lien from Acker Maryland Condit, John Cappen still sympathized with him. So John allowed Rudy to sell some lots of Burgundy at one of his upcoming auctions. For Rudy, this was a chance to make enough cash to get out of the hot water he was in. Or, at the very least, delay it while he came up with a better plan. On April 25, 2008, 31-year-old Rudy watched as John auctioned off lot after lot of wine and champagne from collector Rob Rosania's personal cellar. It was a particularly raucous auction, with lots of laughter and yelling. Normally, Rudy would have gravitated to the center of the merriment, but that day, he chose not to socialize. 
It may have been the nerves or simply the fact that he didn't wish to garner any more skepticism from the community by indulging in discourse with them. Whatever the case, Rudy stood off to the side, quietly waiting for his wines to be featured. His 22 lots of Clausant Denis from Domaine Ponson in Burgundy, France, had the potential to make him $650,000 that night. As he leaned against the wall, Rudy kept his mind on his much-needed payout. With his thoughts consuming him, he didn't notice an unexpected guest slip into the auction room and discreetly take a seat at a table in the back. The new arrival was trim and in his fifties, sporting long salt-and-pepper hair. Donning an unmistakable air of authority, the mystery man flipped through the auction catalogue, pausing briefly to eye Rudy's Domaine Ponson vintages. Then, he motioned to one of the auction's workers, demanding to speak with John Capon directly. In the minutes that followed, John appeared at his table and the man introduced himself as Laurent Ponson, the head of Domaine Ponson. He requested that John pull Rudy's lots from the auction. John nervously rubbed his hands together, asking what the problem was, and Laurent revealed that he'd received a tip from Doug Barsley that Rudy may be attempting to sell counterfeit wines from Laurent's family's domain. After looking through the catalogue, Laurent determined that Doug's suspicions were correct. He pointed to the bottles of Clos Saint-Denis in the catalogue, five of which boasted vintages as far back as 1945, and noted that they were clearly fake. His family's winery had not started producing Clos Saint-Denis until 1982. Another one of Rudy's bottles claimed to be from 1929, but Domaine Ponson didn't start producing the particular wine until 1934. Mortified, John apologized profusely to Laurent. Then, he went up to the podium and continued on with the auction, selling every lot of wine except Rudy's. In the midst of the evening, while there were still bidders holding out on Rudy's Clausant Denis wines, John stood at the mic and laughed nervously. Then, he explained to the crowd that the domain had requested they remove the Ponson lots from the auction. Though John was embarrassed, he was more intent on minimizing the situation by playing it off. John said, I guess there were a couple of inconsistencies there, so we had to pull them. To that, the winos went wild. They felt angry that they had lost their chance to bid on such rare vintages, not realizing that what they were really missing out on was being fraud victims. They had no clue that the inconsistencies John referred to really meant that the bottles were completely counterfeit. But as the guests argued with John, Rudy stood at the back, trying to blend in to the wall. His face was pale and his mouth was dry. He would not be able to completely get away with the evening swindle after all. At that moment, a journalist covering the auction approached Rudy and asked what had happened to the Ponson wines. Rudy replied, We tried to do the right thing, but it's Burgundy. Stuff happens. The journalist walked away, and Rudy scanned the room, searching for the rat who'd outed his wines. His gaze landed on Laurent Ponson, who was staring right back at him. A knot formed in Rudy's stomach. For the first time, he was truly worried that someone 
might expose his operation. The next day, John and Rudy went to lunch with Laurent to smooth things over. Laurent had also invited Doug Barsley, the man who had informed him about Rudy's deceitful nature. Laurent and Doug spent the lunch pressing Rudy for information about the wine, asking where he had bought the bottles originally and why he hadn't double-checked the vintage years with the domain's history. Rudy was evasive. He said he couldn't remember where he'd gotten the wine, mumbling that he'd check his records when he got back to Los Angeles. While Rudy was at the center of the cross-examination, John's reputation was in danger of permanent damage as well. Laurent and Doug chastised him for not doing his due diligence before the event, ensuring that the wines he was auctioning off were, in fact, authentic. Laurent left the lunch angrier than he had been the night prior. He had given Rudy a chance to come clean, to explain where he'd purchased the fraudulent bottles and why he decided to sell them anyway, and Rudy didn't take it. For the next two months, Laurent pestered Rudy via phone and email, demanding to know the source of the counterfeit wine. Rudy avoided his calls and rarely replied to his emails. Whenever Laurent did occasionally manage to make contact, Rudy just said that he was still trying to find the record of sale. According to Stan B. Walters, an expert in interviews and interrogations, Evasion and avoidance are indirect forms of deception often used by accomplished liars like Rudy. In Stan's book, The Truth About Lying, he explains that sometimes, rather than taking a path of direct deception by telling an outright lie, people will simply evade or avoid the question at hand. This strategy is often deployed because it requires little to no mental effort on the part of the deceiver. Coming up with an outright lie involves a process that requires a liar to, at the very least, consider the repercussions of their words. Avoiding answering the question altogether requires nothing at all. It also gives the liar a much-needed gift – time. Many liars who choose to evade have a hidden agenda that they are trying to accomplish, and this process allows them to continue on undisturbed. By ignoring Laurent's emails and phone calls, Rudy was able to keep running his counterfeit operation for a little while longer as he developed an explanation. However, the evade or avoid tactic does have its limits. Obviously, serious liars can't perpetually run from the truth without removing themselves entirely from their community of interrogators. At some point, the deceiver has to either come up with a lie or fess up to whatever they hadn't admitted in the first place. Eventually, Rudy told Laurent that he had bought the wines from the private collection of an Asian man named Park Hendra. He supplied Laurent with two phone numbers to reach the seller, but the excuse didn't hold up. One of the phone numbers belonged to an Indonesian airline. The other was for a shopping mall in Jakarta. Upon further investigation, Laurent found out that, in Indonesian, Park Hendra was the equivalent of Mr. Smith. Rudy desperately hoped that sending Laurent on a wild goose chase for a wine cellar that didn't exist would buy him just a little more time to keep running his failing scheme. But for Laurent, the bad tip had just been another slap in the face and another reason Laurent planned to bring Rudy to justice. John Kappen had been kept in the loop on communications between Laurent and Rudy. 
In spite of the odds against his friend, John held out hope that Rudy had been duped by a seller and therefore held less responsibility for the counterfeit bottles in his collection. But Rudy's lie about the source of the wine was the last straw, and John officially stopped accepting Rudy's wine for sales. They just weren't worth the liability. Though John would have liked to make a clean break from Rudy, he remained in contact in order to manage his debt to the auction house. Rudy, as it happened, had not been forking over the cash. At the end of 2008, 32-year-old Rudy owed Acker Merrill and Condit over $8 million. When the New Year's Eve ball dropped that winter, Rudy thought debt would be his biggest obstacle of 2009. Unfortunately, Rudy was wrong. Coming up, Laurent looks deeper into Rudy's purchase history and encourages law enforcement to do the same. Now, back to the story. In the beginning of 2009, 32-year-old Rudy Kanawan had all but vanished from the public side of the high-end wine world. His reputation had been destroyed when Laurent Ponson identified Rudy's Ponson lot as fake. Since then, Rudy had withdrawn from the wine community and stopped attending bigger auctions. Acker Merrill and Condit's lawyers were hounding him daily, demanding that Rudy pay the store and auction house the $8 million he owed them. Later that year, Rudy's pariah status within the wine world was further exacerbated when famed collector Bill Koch slapped him with a lawsuit. Bill alleged that Rudy had sold him counterfeit bottles of wine through Acamero's auctions back in 2005 and 2006. Throughout 2009, the amount of money Rudy owed various lawyers, banks, friends, and private collectors continued to grow, eventually reaching totals in the tens of millions. Panicked and desperate, Rudy turned to the only method he knew for money-making – wine sales. But this proved to be far more difficult for Rudy than it had ever been. He had been blacklisted from most auction houses, yet there were still a few establishments, either due to desperation or ignorance, that would still accept his bottles. So Rudy kept making them. He knew he couldn't afford to bid on costly wines anymore, so he came up with a new plan to keep his counterfeit operation alive a little longer. With the little credit he had left, Rudy was purchasing large stocks of old Négociant Burgundies. These were Burgundies that had been produced and sold in bulk by vintners and then bottled by various merchant houses. It was a practice that was abandoned in the 1970s, mostly due to concerns of quality control within such large volumes. But the wine still tasted better than the average modern bottle and possessed an age that even Rudy couldn't fake. Rudy used this wine to continue counterfeiting bottles, selling them to private collectors or auction houses that would still accept his business. But people from the elite wine market were still spying on the fraud who had taken a fall from grace. Throughout 2009, Laurent Ponceau had kept a close eye on Rudy, hiring private investigators to look into every aspect of Rudy's life. When Laurent looked into Rudy's recent purchase history, he wasn't pleased to see the orders for massed quantities of Négociant Burgundies. He realized then that Rudy wasn't just selling counterfeit wine, but was probably making it too. Thus far, the fraud scandals of the wine world pertained to those who had knowingly bought and sold fake bottles. To be the chemist behind the actual production of sham wine was an exploit on an entirely new level. 
Almost immediately after Laurent made his revelation about Rudy's counterfeit brewing, the FBI reached out to him with the same suspicion. Special Agent James Wynn had been tipped off to Rudy's activities by Bill Koch and attorney Jason Hernandez back in 2008. Since then, the FBI had quietly been conducting an investigation of Rudy's activities. After reading through Rudy's emails, the FBI decided to contact Laurent about his interactions with Rudy. In February of 2010, Laurent met up with Special Agent Wynne at a Manhattan hotel and thoroughly explained the complex processes of both winemaking and wine fraud. This helped the FBI identify what materials one might procure in order to manufacture counterfeit wine bottles. The FBI had also been monitoring Rudy's mounting debt, paying special attention to what he chose to spend his borrowed money on. What they found most concerning were Rudy's frequent orders of French wax, ink pads, and specific kinds of paper, items used to make wine labels. They were also shocked by the amount of old wine bottles Rudy was purchasing from merchant houses. Laurent had informed Special Agent Wynne that vintage wine bottles were typically made of heavy, hand-blown glass. Rudy would need those to fool collectors. There was no question. Rudy was regularly buying every component he'd need to run a full-blown counterfeit operation. But it would take all of 2010 and 2011 for the FBI to build up a solid case. In early February of 2012, collector Don Cornwell caught wind of an upcoming event at the Spectrum Auction House in London. It planned to feature wines that allegedly came from Rudy. As someone who took care to stay updated on fake wine sellers in the community, Don eagerly warned his fellow buyers about Rudy's fraudulent past. When Spectrum attempted to defend its sale of alleged Rudy Canawan vintages, the members of the Wine Berserkers Forum went, well, berserk. Don's post generated enough buzz that the British wine media covered all of the back and forth. A few influential importers even issued press releases asking for the removal of Rudy's wine. Eventually, Spectrum capitulated to the pressure and decided not to include Rudy's wine in their auction after all. And when Rudy learned of all that happened seemingly overnight, his heart sunk. He'd lost yet another opportunity to make hundreds of thousands of dollars, money he needed to make just a small dent in his mountain of debt. But when asked how he was doing by the few friends he had left, Rudy claimed he was feeling just fine. The FBI had tapped Rudy's phone by this point, and in a recorded conversation on March 6, 2012, he shook off questions about his mental state following the London auction controversy. Rudy said, Dude, if I had any concern, I'd be on the next flight home. In a situation where Rudy should have been alarmed, if not panicked, about his future, he barely seemed ruffled at all. Rudy's disproportionate reaction may have been a biological defense mechanism his body deployed to keep him from falling apart entirely. Defense mechanisms are strategies utilized by the unconscious mind wherein reality is manipulated in order to protect the ego from feeling anxious or upset. According to psychiatrist George Emmon Valiant, there are four different classifications of defense mechanisms – psychotic defenses, immature defenses, neurotic defenses, and mature defenses. 
Rudy's behavior suggests that he may have been unconsciously putting forth a psychotic defense, wherein the mind distorts reality to the point of delusion, effectively allowing the person to deny what's happening around them. Unfortunately, Rudy's deluded perception of reality did anything but protect him. Instead, it lulled him into a false sense of safety. Rather than stay silent about his future plans with friends on the phone, Rudy was loose-lipped and careless. When he casually mentioned the prospect of skipping town on a phone call, he had no qualms. But the FBI certainly did. When the FBI heard Rudy's call that day, they deemed him a flight risk and obtained a warrant for his arrest. On the morning of March 8, 2012, a pajama-clad Rudy opened his front door to find a team of police officers and FBI agents standing on his front stoop. He didn't put up a single fight when officers told him he was under arrest and led him to a police car. Indeed, Rudy seemed to understand that the jig was finally up. As the FBI wandered through Rudy's house, they couldn't turn a corner without being confronted with evidence of his counterfeit operation. Once again, his delusional defense mechanism served to his detriment. It had not prepared him for a home invasion, so Rudy hadn't cleaned up any evidence of his scheme before opening his front door. There were wine bottles everywhere they looked. They rolled on the floors and lay in the refrigerator. They stood on the countertops and the windowsills. They sat in his kitchen sink, soaking in soapy water, their labels slowly peeling off. And of course, the entire house was kept at a cool of 62 degrees, an ideal temperature for preserving wine. The FBI opened box after box of labels, wax seals, and rubber stamps bearing various winery names. They found a couple of bins filled with glue and stencils and pattern scissors, and another with lead capsules and corks and foil. They discovered a corking gadget being cleaned in Rudy's dishwasher. And as if the rest of this evidence wasn't damning enough, the FBI also clocked several wines in the process of being mixed. The formulas for Rudy's blends were written on the sides of the bottles, awaiting his creations. After almost five years of suspicion within the wine community and three years of FBI investigation, Rudy Kanaewen was finally confirmed as a fraud. News of Rudy's arrest traveled fast, spreading like wildfire through wine forums the day after he was taken into custody. While some were unsurprised by Rudy's arrest, almost everyone was shocked when they learned the extent of his counterfeit operation. The realization that Rudy had been making fake wines in addition to selling them generated a whole new wave of disappointment and distress. Rudy's former friends wondered if he had been forced into fraud due to financial trouble or if he had been swindling them via a long con. They were also worried that Rudy hadn't been acting alone due to the sheer volume of fake bottles Rudy had produced. Unfortunately, most of their questions would remain unanswered. The FBI never uncovered anyone guilty of colluding with Rudy, even though people like Laurent Ponceau insisted that he must have had help. And Rudy never revealed his reasoning nor his routine, pleading not guilty to all charges. His defense team tried everything to help get him acquitted, challenging the legality of the FBI's initial search of Rudy's house. But the judge determined that the collected evidence was admissible. 
They also attempted to issue a last-minute insanity defense on Rudy's behalf, but the clinicians who examined him found him to be both sane and charming. Rudy's case finally went to trial in December of 2013. The 37-year-old sat before the jury as the prosecution produced witness after witness who testified to Rudy's wrongdoings. Three Burgundian winemakers, Laurent Ponceau, Christophe Rumier, and Aubert Duvillain, all voluntarily took the stand. As French citizens, they were not required to appear in American court, but they felt that it was their duty to their community to speak up against what Rudy had done. After more than a week of trial, the jury took just one evening to reach their verdict. They found Rudy guilty of several counts of fraud. Several months later before his sentencing, Rudy submitted a letter to the court in which he expressed remorse for his actions. He explained that he had been obsessed with the glitzy, rich world of wine and tried everything he could to maintain his position inside it. Rudy said, My priorities were completely out of order. The things I did to maintain this illusion were so foolish. The end was inevitable. Of course, it's unclear whether Rudy would have expressed any remorse before his arrest, and in the end, his words came too late to have impact. The judge did not sympathize, ignored Rudy's pleas for leniency, and sentenced him to 10 years in federal prison and nearly $30 million in restitution to his victims. In 2015, the remainder of Rudy's wine collection was examined for authentic bottles that could be used toward repayment. As of 2016, Rudy was still depositing $150 per month, earned through prison work, into a federal restitution account. Today, 44-year-old Rudy awaits his release from prison. As soon as he's let out, he'll be deported back to Indonesia. A trip to Burgundy, however, is not necessarily out of the question. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Rudy Kanaewen, amongst the many sources we used, we found In Vino Duplicitas by Peter Hellman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Con Artists was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Hey listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.